0: Hello and welcome to The Lawyer podcast. I'm Katrin Griffiths, editor of The Lawyer.
1: And I'm Christian Smith, litigation editor of The Lawyer.
0: We're coming to you from The Lawyer's in-house financial services conference in the city.
1: It has been a crisis packed few years for financial service firms and in-house lawyers have borne the brunt of managing these. So in this episode of the podcast, we are joined by two attendees to discuss what's keeping them up at night.
0: Laura Farnworth, General Counsel and Company Secretary at Atom Bank, will be with us and she'll also be arguing why every GC should also become company secretary.
1: And Mark Anderson from Simply Business joins us to talk about the main question on everyone's lips at the conference. You guessed it, AI.
0: Also this episode, treasure chests, twins switched at birth, Robert the Bruce and Adam Smith.
1: No, we're not doing a crossover with Kat's favourite podcast, The Rest Is History, or that that would be pretty cool. Rather, it's the story behind what may be Scotland's oldest law firm, Anderson Stratham. So stick around to find out more.
0: But first, trophy offices have long been a passion of managing partners across the country. But with changing working habits and client demands for greener buildings, the concept of the law firm office has changed dramatically in recent years. But not all firms agree on what the future looks like. Earlier, our Horizon editor, Katie Dowell, joined the podcast to explain the latest trends in office refurbs.
1: Katie Dell, welcome back to the podcast. Um, You haven't been able to move in the city recently for, for office refurbs and, and office shifts. I mean, what's all that about?
2: Yeah, demand is uh, going through the reef, I think, and uh, if you want to sort of understanding what that looks like. Knight Frank put out some data earlier this year to say that um, London law firms took more than one and a half million square foot of space in the city last year. And uh, there's no end to demand with a further one million square foot of space wanted from firms this year. So everywhere you look, law firms are either moving or they're refurbing or they're looking at add, adding some green streets to their buildings everything is changing that's the point isn't it Katie it's all about
0: you know who's the greenest of green you know have you got a green wall have you got you know sort of bricks for your swifts have you got you know bees have you got you know well actually and to be fair all the certification you know to be serious about certification about um green buildings. as well that's where the kind of office race is isn't it?
2: Yes, it's all about being able to source everything locally, working in a local community, having the shrubbery, having clean air. Light is something that all firms are talking about. Clients are are really pushing this. They want to know their firms have green credentials, but, but partners think it's something that they can get involved with too. I mean, it's a tricky business if you're in management. There are many factions here that you've got to keep happy, aren't there? And so, what do you think are the sort of the tricky bits of it um, when it comes to the partnership? And I suppose if you've got an if you've got a firm that has I don't know five or six offices across the UK, and you're seen to be investing heavily in one of those offices and not into another, it risks upset. Mm-hmm. And um, this is what we're sort of hearing at the moment about Osborne Clark, in that they've just moved into a fancy new digs down in in Bristol, and um, be hearing that uh, those in London are, aren't feeling the love so much at the moment, and uh, and that's something that's a challenge for for the managing partner there to keep those people in London on side mm-hmm. while they're investing elsewhere. I think it's really I think I, you cannot
0: move for managing partners and sort of sort of senior partners who are excited about their new move. I mean, I honestly I was talking to two. Magic Circle uh, management partners at two different firms, and they were rhapsodizing about their upcoming new buildings. You can probably guess who they are. Um, but but what was really interesting about this was that they they the pure enthusiasm and the joy about what was coming, and what what that would mean for the firm, and they really believed it. I mean, I'm slightly cynical. It's sort of you know for those of us who are old enough to remember the the Mitterrand um, sort of Grand in the, in the in the 80s. I mean, that was all about stamping a great big legacy and soft power and, you know, how the landscape can reflect particular values and particular ideological values. It sort of feels a bit like that all over again. You know, the city used to be full of trophy buildings, you know, kind of called ridiculous names. And now it's a bit of a softer thing, you know, who can be the greenest and all the rest of the stuff. And I think there is also, and Katie, you and I have talked about this, but, you know, about that legacy. What have you got as a law firm partner? You've done loads of contracts. You've you kept your clients happy. What, if, what can you point to in, in real terms? And sometimes a trophy building, certainly at the end of your career, you can go, actually, I, I was kind of on the team that really brought this about.
2: I decided what shrubbery we were going to have on the wall, that, that kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> rather than the artwork, yeah. Yes, that's, that's... absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's not even funny. so much shrubbery. It's
0: actually saying, look at this big, big trophy building that everyone will want to, to come and work for us because actually it, it's a manifestation of a bunch of values about how much we care for our staff. And... But, and it's but, just and... such a set of psychological kind of manoeuvres, it seems to me. But
2: at the same time, I suppose... <sighs> it's all up in the air at the moment so much is happening at so many different firms and they all they all want to achieve a similar thing but they're doing it in a different way and and nobody really knows who's right or wrong and I, I wonder whether in a few years time we'll be looking back and not not rowing back on the green credentials but rowing back on the amount of space that they're taking or the hubs that they're putting in or You know put it just changing things again the world is changing around us faster than firms can change their change their office at least isn't it
1: it it is really interesting i mean because it is such a time of change and with the change in working habits and working patterns and that sort of thing i mean you look at clifford chance for example which are you know now famously moving out of canary wharf but they're designing their office for 2028 now they don't know what what people are going to want no. in five years' time. And things have changed so much in the last twelve twenty four months. You mm. look at Shaw Goddard, who is who is also moving offices next year, but they're increasing their space, not decreasing like lots of firms are doing it. So there's there's really different ways that people are going about things, and I but think it's, you,
0: it's. But do you really think, Christian, that the, the the you know sort of the function of the office has changed that much in thirty years? I mean, obviously the 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 surrounding the nicer. You know, nice coffee, lovely ergonomic chairs, lots of lights, a bit screen, all that kind of stuff. That's more nice now. But fundamentally, offices aren't that different functionally than they were before the pandemic.
1: I think the big difference is number of desks and whether or not you're going to set yourself up with a situation where you're going, well, we're going to be working from home three days a week. Yeah. We don't need a desk for everyone. And yeah. that, you know, creates problems. I think the other side of it is how you do your meeting rooms and that sort of thing, because the, the, the stuff that's happening at the moment is that people are getting sick of having to sit in on other people's meetings that they're having in their mm. open plan office, which I think it's <laughs> not just law that that's a thing for, but but it's, it's yeah. a thing that's, hap- that's happening everywhere. I <laughs>
0: predict, I, I absolutely predict we're going to get a huge... a a huge backlash against the open plan um office because in many ways it's so it's so easy and you know ideally you can do teamwork but fundamentally you know i've I've lost count again of the number of lawyers who said this actually it's really nice to work very closely with one or two individuals and that's sort of that whole osmosis that everyone talks about so you know i think i bet you anything we will be going back to cellular but in a really beautiful green way (laughs) I <laughs> but, I, but
1: but i think I think also I mean so much of this can be overstated with how important it is i mean in, in the same way as you were talking about Kat, about how offices are kind of projects that managing partners latch onto as a sort of legacy or a way of. Mm-hmm. Of, of making a clear big difference. I think they often overstate them and they say that these huge things that are going to make life so much better for their staff. But, but you know, if you don't have a good culture, if the work that you're giving your staff is terrible or your staff don't like working at the firm, putting some more pot plants on the wall or giving them some slightly nicer coffee. I mean, for some people, that is a big deal. But I think for most people, it's a distraction. And it's a way of, of partners going, look at what we're doing, aren't we amazing? But actually, yeah. at the end of the day, everyone's sitting there going, no, you're not.
0: Mind you, having said that, I remember we did we surveyed uh, our readers about five, six, seven years ago. Can't remember; it was pre-pandemic. Time has no meaning. Um, but but I remember that the DACB people literally described their office as a dungeon, and, no, and, that, a dungeon. Was, and that was and that was actually it was awful and it was famously <laughs> terrible. Uh, and obviously they've moved, and it's all you know, yeah, hunky now. But but actually, when it gets to some, I mean, no amount of good work can actually get over. I mean, Katie, you remember our old offices with the mice mm. and the and the with terrible lose. Oh my god! But you know, you kind of remember that. But equally, that sort of creates an esprit de corps. People remember. Do you remember how terrible the lifts were? They broke down. Yeah, you know, it sort of becomes a kind of
2: communal thing. Yeah, a lot of this is being driven by the UK firms at the moment, but um, demand, but demand from US firms or international firms is actually on the rise and rising quite quickly. So what you could see is a, a situation where all these firms are refurbing at the moment. We'll only have to do it again in two years' time if they're going to keep up with the U.S. Joneses.
1: Katie, thanks very much. Now, as we said at the top of the show, we are at the Lawyers' In-House Financial Services Conference. And earlier today, Kat spoke to Mark Anderson, GC of Simply Business
0: i'm here with mark anderson who's head of legal at simply business now mark you chaired not one but two round tables on the same topic which is all about you you were wanting to get i thoughts about sort of the future shape of legal services um and i think you went into it thinking oh we can talk about sort of service delivery we can talk about shapes of private practice shapes of in-house teams but what did you get
3: you know what, Kat, it's so funny. Just the conversation kept coming back round to AI, generative AI. I tried my hardest. There were even apologies for being in the conversation back round to it, but it's all anyone wants to talk about. It's the big thing. Now, yes, we, we'd had a session about it earlier, but it's on everyone's minds. Everyone's talking about it. And the poll you ran here for the earlier session tells us 90% of people, of the lawyers here, are working at organisations where it's happening, it's about to happen. It's in everyone's thoughts, absolutely.
0: Did you get the sense that there was uh, a full sort of wholehearted embrace of the possibilities or rather not? <laughs>
3: you know what? A little bit of a mix. Some, I, I think some, some nervousness. Not, not necessarily reticence, but a watching brief. That's how it came across. A lot of people aren't prepared, or the lawyers there aren't, aren't leading the charge necessarily on, on bringing it through. Um, should it be for the legal function to do that, though? I'm not sure. When we all, a number of us there, and, and we had 50, 60 people across two sessions, a lot of organisations are, are keeping a watching brief on this. And, and you know, we, there were there were one or two places talking about, you know, putting. Drawing, bringing up the drawbridge and, and stopping it. Mm. Uh, controls are being spoken about. You'd expect that from lawyers though wouldn't you? So is the uh, is innovation there? I think there are one or two on the fintech side, maybe. Yeah. So yeah, it was interesting.
0: And actually, you took you, you you touched on something quite mm. interesting there because obviously this is a financial services conference, but we have fintechs kind of yeah. startups here, and we have huge, you know, multinational, global kind of organisations within financial services. Do you think there's a bit of a difference of approach towards the whole topic of generative AI between the fintechs and the and the sort of the big incumbents,
3: you know what I, I think you can already get a sense about that. I think those those larger institutions that are driven more by concerns around governance and, and, and regulation because they're they're under the scope, if you like. Yes, there are those controls do come into place. They they also keen to develop their own tools and they want to control and keep away mm. or, or keep out that that kind of ad hoc use and and bring it up through to the, through to the surface. Whereas the fintechs, the, the the innovative spirit, if you like, that direct link. Through to the CTO, I think it gives those um, those lawyers and those functions a little bit more scope to experiment and to perhaps lead the you know lead the innovation yeah. and be part of of the narrative around it. Definitely, yeah.
0: That line into the chief technology officer is a very interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. And, and actually how and and where that that sort of line of communication is. I mean, talking about the sort of the in, in terms of the larger organisations. You and I were talking to one person from a large financial services organisation afterwards who said that their uh, organization had entirely banned the yep. use of ChatGPT or generative AI internally. That they were sort of building their own kind of platform internally, but then we were talking about well, what happens if your external counsel are using it's, this? It's a, and yeah, they said, an one, "Ah, that's something that we need to start factoring in because yep. uh, you know there's like a kind of bit of a worry." What's your take on that? I mean, is this this is this is a, this this is a difficult? Yeah, what,
3: what are you paying? What service are you paying for? And I think a lot of people walk away today thinking. Gosh, I should have that chat with my external advisors. Mm. To what extent is the advice coming through and the service they're delivering being generated through an, a, a generative AI tool? Um, it's it's out there. We know it is. There's articles that I'm reading the FT about it at, at established law firms, and, and they're experimenting. So I think it is it's 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 an issue that everyone's aware of, and and we'll be looking at very closely in terms of how the service delivery that comes out of external uh, law firms evolves and makes the most of it. But the question does come back: What are we paying for then? Mm. And could we do it ourselves as an in-house legal function?
0: That's that is such a challenge to private practice, isn't it? It's yeah, very interesting, 100%. Mark. Great to have you on. Thanks Thank, for you. Me. Thank, Thank you.
1: Thank you. That was Mark Anderson.
0: Earlier, Christian also spoke with Laura Farnworth from Atom Bank.
1: You find us here just after lunch. I'm sitting here with Laura Farnworth. She's the General Counsel and Company Secretary at Atom Bank. And earlier she was on a panel about the role of the lawyer in financial crisis management. Laura, good to have you on. You said something really interesting earlier in regards to the role of the lawyer in financial crisis management and how the in-house council, the general council really needs to be thinking outside the box in that sort of mm. sense.
4: Yes, in my mind the role of the GC is a wide one and you're touching a lot of the areas within the business whether that be that pure crisis, but also thinking about the impact on other areas like supplier contracts, employee relations. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about the job, actually. And I think one of the things that builds on to that is the company secretarial role, obviously, that I do with Atom Bank as well. It's actually one of my favourite roles um, in the bank, but it gives you that wide visibility across those stakeholders, the board, the shareholders, and, um, and it's, it's something I really enjoy. It's an interesting one, Christian. Um, I think there's an assumption at executive committees that because you're a lawyer, you're good at minuting meetings. That's not always the case. Not always that you know, a GC will probably want to do company secretarial. There are... You know, whether it be the statutory responsibilities associated with it, or just the general governance, and um, it's not for everyone. But it's something I enjoy because of that engagement and knowledge that you are building within the business. When you're actively minuting a meeting, that's where you pick up the knowledge.
1: Well, it, it gives you kind of an insight, as you were saying earlier, into the business that you never get anywhere else. That you know, you know, you work at a bank effectively. Mm-hmm. You sort of said that you thought you knew how a bank worked before you became company secretary and now...
4: Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, I was in private practice. I was a, a corporate banking lawyer and I thought I understood banking. And when I then started minuting these meetings and listening to liquidity, funding, ICAPs, ILAPs, you know, risk management... And product lines, and you know, customer centricity. That's when you really get into the detail of a bank, and that's when you see the full workings. And a very privileged position, actually, that not many get of seeing it across the full spectrum of the business.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, is it exactly what you thought you would be doing as an in-house lawyer, or has it changed <laughs> quite a lot?
4: My role, even itself, in the nine years I've been at Atom has changed hugely. You know, when you're in a startup, it's it's firefighting. You're, you're almost doing as many jobs and wearing as many hats as you can. Now, when you're in that regulated atmosphere with stakeholders to answer to. It's a different role. Is it what I thought I would be doing? I love the entrepreneurial aspect to it. I love the fact it's not pure law. Mm. You are that strategic business advisor that we, we speak about at many of these conferences, which I really enjoy that aspect of, of dealing with.
1: Mm. Laura Farnworth from Eton Bank. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Christian.
4: That was Laura Farnworth.
0: Now, finally on this episode, a couple of days ago, the lawyer's deputy editor UK, Richard Simmons, caught up with the managing partner of Anderson Strathern, Murray McCall, to discuss a new book about the firm's history, Solicitors to Scotland.
5: Three huge iron chests lay locked in the office of a law firm, their ancient mechanisms jealously guarding secrets of Scotland's past. No one had seen inside the chests for over a century or knew what they contained. When the bolts were finally opened, the artefacts contained within revealed more than anyone had ever expected. No, it's not the plot of the latest Indiana Jones film, but the introduction to a book charting the history of a law firm. We do normally steer clear of book reviews at The Lawyer, so please don't send us your novel. But we've made an exception for this one, as it really is a fascinating slice of legal history, complete with witch finders, bloodstained letters and erotica. The book is titled Solicitors to Scotland, Seduction, Sedition and Subterfuge in the Lost History of a Law Firm. And to tell some of the story, I'm delighted to be joined by one of the Raiders of the Lost Archives, Murray McCall, Managing Partner of the Firm in Question, Glasgow and Edinburgh's Anderson
6: Strathern. Hello, Richard. Uh, Delighted to be with you.
5: So tell us uh, a little bit of the story of the discovery of these chests. I I understand you were in the room when it happened um, and, and how this book came to be written.
6: Well the chests there were 3 of them in total big iron chests have been in the law firm for hundreds of years so they've actually been sitting around in reception uh, up on the meetings floor 3 in total one has always been opened and two have been locked and frankly everyday people would pass by and you know possibly have a look at them but not think too much about them until one day, my, my son, uh, Ewan McCall, who's the author of the book, was in the, in the law firm with me. And he, he basically casually asked, why has no one ever tried to open them and find out what's inside? And I sort of scratched my head and thought, well, that's a good point. But, you know, moved on to something else. What Ewan then did um, was he went and secured a locksmith in Edinburgh and also secured a number of leading professors from various universities and uh, arranged for the the chest to be open. Um, And uh, we had an event in our Edinburgh office one evening where a locksmith worked for about an hour in the background trying to open two of these enormous chests while we had a range of eminent professors of law standing around waiting to see what was inside them. So you can imagine um, I was somewhat nervous about what we might find. Because it could have been nothing. Well, it did. And um, much to my horror, when the first chest was opened, um, there was, in fact, nothing in it. (laughs) So, you know, this incredibly elaborate locking mechanism um, was undone by the locksmith after some effort, and there was nothing in it. The next chest, we, we had a sense there was something in it, but we had no idea what. Um, when he finally did open it, we found a pile of documents that had been in there, we reckon, for about 100, between 150 and 120 years. And they were covered in sort of almost black suit. Um, so, yeah, we found something in in the final chest, uh, but it was not something we could readily make out or read. It all had to be cleaned off. And then Ewan started his research on on the material.
5: But it really was a treasure trove when it, when it actually all was cleaned up you you discovered an immense immense amount and and the book isn't so much the history of Anderson Strathern, so much of the history of Scotland told through the firm's eyes um, and i don't know if there's any particular uh, any particular documents or anything particular that came to light that really um, really stuck with you yes
6: um, in amongst the the material there was There were letters that had been written by one of one of my predecessors, a partner in the the firm way back in the the late 1800s. And it was letters between him and a client. And it really uh, it it, it was the story of the client's journey um, and uh, work with the East India Company. So there were a lot of Scots back in Victorian times who were, were involved in the East India Company and they would travel between Scotland and England, often base themselves there. And many of the letters related to the adventures of, of uh, particular clients over in India. Uh, some of those adventures related to um, people dying at sea. There was a situation as well where um, one of the the colleagues of uh, of the client uh, was fed to a tiger uh, by uh, by a, a gentleman in India. Uh, there were other situations where there was a lot of um, I would say uh, challenges in that you would have uh, you would have uh, young men going to India to find their fortune, but getting mixed up in incredibly difficult situations where they would perhaps father a number of children by a number of women. And all of this, uh, all of these stories were told in these letters passing between the the clients and uh, one of my predecessors. Um, Other things we found um, connected to the Chess or through the National Archives, once we started digging a bit deeper, included uh, a disposition of of land uh, by the leading economist uh, Adam Smith, um, to, to an individual that we uh, brokered. Uh, we also discovered documents going all the way back to the time of Robert the Bruce. Okay, so,
5: I mean, let's, let's look from, from past then to future. Uh, the, the Scottish market, it feels like it's changed quite a lot over the last decade or two, a lot of English firms coming north. Um, how do you see the landscape um, as it lies, and, and what are the prospects and opportunities for Scotland as a legal market?
6: I expect the consolidation uh, will slow down a bit. Um, I think there's only so much you can do at any given time. And um, I think also you've got to be aware of the fact that some of these um, mergers and takeovers that are taking place, um, they don't always work out, perhaps, the way that that people hope. So you can see some uh, firms coming into Scotland now, or who've maybe come in in the last five to six years, where. you know, it looks as if it will be good, but, you know, it's not necessarily worked out that way for um, for the partners, for the staff and for the clients. And, uh, you know, you always take a bit of a risk. And I think some of the firms uh, coming into Scotland are, will be well, well aware of that.
5: Always a danger with any merger, isn't it? Murray, thank you so much for joining us.
0: That's all we have time for on this episode of The Lawyer Podcast.
1: Thank you for listening. As always, you can contact us at podcast at the lawyer.com. And of course, you can find out more about anything we've been discussing at the lawyer.com.
0: Now, this is the last episode of the lawyer podcast before we take our summer break over July and August.
1: We will be back again in September with lots of new and exciting content for you.
0: But for now, have a wonderful summer and see you in the autumn. Goodbye. Goodbye.